Okay, it's my great pleasure to have on the line with me Phoebe. She is an Australian activist currently abroad uh, and engaging with international solidarity, the international solidarity movement in the West Bank. Uh, thanks for joining us, Phoebe. Thanks for having me, Karen. Hi. Perhaps you could, we could start by if you could just give us a bit of a rundown what's uh, what's been happening in that part of the world lately. I guess um, I guess it's worth pointing out that I was here in February as well, so I'm I'm kind of comparing to when I was last here, sure. as well as um, yeah, just general news from the area. But it's definitely there's there's a huge escalation basically going on in the region right now. Yep. Um, the, the the Red Crescent, which is part of the International Red Cross Society, um, put out a state of emergency last um, Tuesday. And, uh, oh, sorry, Sunday the 4th. And um, that, I guess, kind of reflects where we're at. So it's a level three state of emergency. After f- there were 14 attacks in 74 hours on their ambulances and staff, um, which includes from soldiers, so Israeli soldiers, as well as by settlers. Um, and I think that's kind of a good starting point to understand what's going on in the area right now and how there's this escalation going on. But, um, yeah, I guess, so between Saturday the 3rd um, to Tuesday the 6th, there was the, the total injured number of people was over 600 within the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Yep. And 49 of them were shot with live rounds. So while that's going, like the sort of, there is a conflict that's continuing and um, every day in this area, this these sort of numbers are totally out of proportion to what is usually going on, which is also quite horrific. But um, yeah, there's definitely an increased tension in the area right now. Give us a sense, Phoebe. I, I know, well, I understand you, you know, being there as you are, we, we, we hear these numbers uh, you know, we see some of the, the images on TV, etc. Uh, give us a sense uh, of, of what it is like for, for ordinary Palestinians at this time of heightened violence. Uh, but uh, very, very sadly, it's it's par for the course almost over there, isn't it? Sure. Um, yeah, and I should reiterate with those numbers, they're the last numbers that I have, and they're from almost a week ago. So they will definitely have increased a lot since then. Yep. And it's just all I have access to at the moment. Um, so I encourage everyone to go out and find what you can because it's probably not going to getting into the mainstream media in Australia right now. Yep. But um, in terms of the day-to-day life, mm-hmm. well, right now I'm based in near Nablus in the northern West Bank and uh, this is the main olive picking and olive growing area of um, the West Bank which constitutes about 15% of the income of the West Bank. Um so you can imagine it's a pretty serious industry here. Um, I think it, like, it's a very good example of the sort of daily issues that Palestinians have to deal with because this region, um, many, many olive trees, um, many quite poor farmers, basically, um, relying on this as their main source of income. And in order to pick their olives, they have to apply for a permit through um, the local council, which is basically part of the Palestinian Authority, which is basically very much, uh, shall we say, influenced by the Israeli army. So essentially the Palestinian farmers have to apply to the Israeli authorities for their um, the right to pick olives. 
the reason this kind of this is justified by the Israeli authorities is that many of the olive trees exist um, higher up in the valleys because a lot of the Palestinian villages are based in valleys and on the hills of most of many of these valleys there are illegal settlements set up of Israelis who have come into the West Bank, established houses and essentially defend those houses and what they feel is their right to be there. They're completely illegal within international law. They're illegal based on basically any legal structures you want to apply to it, but they are defended by the Israeli soldiers and um, the Israeli state and by implication by all the um, global political structures that support that. So the, uh, the, these soldiers, many of these settlers who are just civilians are also heavily armed. Um, so you will be standing and picking olives and be able to see settlers on the top of the hill with, like, I'm not very good with identifying different types of guns, but incredibly large guns, and they're just civilians. So for a Palestinian farmer who wants to go and pick their olives, there's a very real risk of um, being attacked by settlers, especially at the moment, or of soldiers coming and telling them that despite having a permit, they have no right to pick their olives at this particular time. The, um, the only other time in the year that they're able to apply for a permit to access their own land is uh, around for about two weeks in, um, I guess it would be spring, um, in which they till the soil. So around January, February. So that, that equates to one month in the year that they're able to access their own crops. If they try to access that land outside of that time, they can be arrested, they can be by the soldiers, or they could be attacked by settlers. Um, as it stands at the moment, if, you, if um, Palestinians go to pick their um, olives and settlers come along, um, they may either, the Palestinians themselves might choose to leave or soldiers sometimes come along and there's this particularly bizarre dynamic where the soldiers are potentially some sort of protection against the settlers, which is, yeah, it's, it's quite difficult to explain, but because in theory the soldiers are there to protect the legal structures of... Um, Palestinians' rights, then they should be there to um, reduce any, any chances of violence, which, of course, in reality, isn't how it plays out because the soldiers half the time are the ones making the Palestinians leave their own land. So within the last three days, I've seen both kind of potential um, things occur where one was a group of settlers came and um, were shouting from the top of a hilltop to this family that um, we were picking olives with. And uh, they essentially, they started swinging something above their head and shouting threats. And the family we were with have six children and they were basically like, run. They just turned around to the children and said, run, get out of here. And we stayed with the family just to make sure they were okay. But they decided to pack up and not pick olives for the rest of that day. The next day... Um, the soldiers were nowhere to be seen. The next day, um, we went to pick olives with the same family. And uh, when we arrived, settlers had already been on the scene but not threatened anyone. They'd just been so-called just watching <laughs> from nearby. Yeah. 
um, and soldiers had come down, told the settlers to leave, but the settlers were still watching from nearby. And um, the soldiers told the Palestinians to leave. So in both scenarios, essentially, Palestinians who are rightfully on their own land are being told to move because of the threat of settlers. (laughs) And uh, they have no right to dispute this. They've got no legal structures that will help support them in this. And uh, at the end of the day, they're not able to pick the olives which they rely on for their subsistence. So our role as internationals within that is Mm. basically we're, we're hoping that the presence of an international community might in some way reduce the likelihood of settler attacks in the first place. Um, It's also to give some semblance of essentially like human rights abuses of gigantic scale happen every single day in the West Bank. And the vast majority of them do not make any sort of international media. And so our hope is that by international people being here in solidarity with Palestinian people, we can record what's happening, we can get some media, um, we can put it out on our website, we can talk about it. Because even people who are sympathetic with the Palestinian cause, I think it's very difficult to know what actually happens on the ground on a day-to-day basis. So that's that's what we're doing here. And that's that's one part of the day-to-day life in this particular region. Talk a bit, I guess, about the, uh, you know, the huge, I imagine... uh discrepancy of force. I understand just witnessed uh, recently uh, some young people arrested and blindfolded for, for throwing stones. You know, the intimidation for ordinary Palestinians must just be overwhelming and powerlessness that they must feel to be able to address this situation at all uh, must lead, of course, to some pretty desperate acts. I guess that's one of the big things that in terms of people who don't know much about Palestine is it's there's this impression that there's a cycle of violence going on and that the kind of punishments inflicted on Palestinian people is a consequence of the sort of things that happened during the Second Intifada with the um, suicide bombers and things like this. I think it's really important that people understand that the scale of violence inflicted on Palestinian people on an everyday basis is completely disproportionate to the vast, vast majority of any resistance that Palestinians are able or willing to to do, and that the vast majority is of of resistance is nonviolent, and that yes, the, the the kind of what what does happen, like what the, the every single Friday demonstrations across the West Bank that happen in an attempt for people to reclaim access to their wells, to their olive trees to their land, to their houses, they, you, like vast majority of them are nonviolent, and the ones that aren't nonviolent, basically that, if you call it nonviolence, that basically looks like teenage boys throwing stones at soldiers. And we're talking about one of the most heavily armed uh, militaries in the world. So, um, you know, the politics of violence and nonviolence aside, like you need to understand that scale if you're going to understand the politics of the West Bank and what's happening to Palestinians. So, yeah, we, I was in um, Hebron, which is possibly the most intense town in the West Bank because it has actual settlements within the city, which is um, doesn't exist in other places. Um, 
So it's an incredibly tense space. Um, the International Solidarity Movement, we have an apartment there right in the middle of a neighbourhood where you have settlers, in some cases, literally living on one floor of a Palestinian family's house. So they, the Palestinian family were kicked out with force, with guns, with the soldiers, and a settler family moves in. And um, which you can imagine is not a great, great way to start being natives. Um, so, yeah, the, there's been clashes every single day in Hebron in the last week. Um, and this is the same town where a few weeks ago the 18-year-old uh, woman named Hadil was shot by a soldier from a few metres away um, when he was shouting at her in Hebrew and she didn't understand mm. and she didn't move and then they shot her. Um, and, like, which... Yeah, I, I mean, I can't even explain that situation better than that. Um, I've seen the bullet holes in the ground where they shot her while she was on the ground and then they left her to bleed to death. And um, then they didn't allow the the um, ambulance to come through, the Palestinian ambulance, so they basically left her there. So there's been, I think, part of the clashes that have happened since then have been a result of that, which, yeah, most of that looks like um, people throwing stones at a very big checkpoint. Um, which the response to which is um, sound grenades, um, lots of tear gas in the air nearly all the time in Hebron. Um, what else? Rubber-coated bullets. Uh, sorry, rubber-coated steel bullets, which is very important to point out because these they are potentially lethal. Yeah. And um, live ammunition. And the amount of live ammunition that's been used in the West Bank in the last few weeks has skyrocketed. Um, so, yeah, we were one day being present at these clashes, so watching them, filming, um, recording what we saw. And then later that afternoon, um, at one of the checkpoints, we saw two boys who'd been arrested from it. They were both probably about 14 or 15 years old, blindfolded on the ground, surrounded by 10 people from the Israeli military, and uh, who put them in the back of the truck, sat around and had a conversation for a while and a bit of a laugh. Mm. And then um, they drove off and told us, well, that these, these boys are going to be taken to Ofer, which is a military prison, uh, an intelligence gathering area, mm. described as, um, which means that at least it will be at least six months before those boys are given any sort of trial, which is like basic course of law, obviously. This is a huge, um, uh, I guess, contravention of like international law and, and, and ways of dealing with, um, you know, justice. Talk to us about some of the, the Westerners or people from other parts of the world that, that are involved with this international solidarity movement. Um, talk to us a bit about that mission, you know, how you got engaged with it and how other people might uh, find sure. out a bit more about it. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I guess, like, personally, I, I knew a little bit about Palestine. Um, I'd seen some documentaries. I was interested in, in knowing more about it. And I was interested in visiting the region to understand it better. So I first came here in February. Basically, I wasn't tied to working with any particular organization or in any particular way. Um, I just wanted to find a way to try to contribute in a positive way to the situation here because I could 
my sense was that huge disparity of power and access to information. Mm-hmm. And um, when I got here, I decided to join the International Solidarity Movement. Um, I like the fact that it's Palestinian-run and led. So although we're largely internationals, um, we, we're, we're not trying to do the white saviour thing, <laughs> standing up and going, we're going to solve this, because yeah. we don't understand the full situation, of course. And um, so we're, we're just, we're waiting. We, we're committed to working in non-violent ways to support Palestinians in the popular struggle. So, yeah, that, that means being there at Friday demonstrations and seeing what happens and recording that and trying to get media on that. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's hard to know how effective it is. To be honest, I think right now um, Israel isn't particularly interested in what the global community thinks. Um, and I also think that it has just the incredible access to mass media that um, the Israel Israeli state has um, means that I don't think it really matters to them that much what they're actually doing on the ground because at the end of the day there still seems to be this sympathy within the Western world towards Israel um, for various reasons despite things like I mean the last time there was, it was interesting in the media was during the Gaza war last year in, in July when um, they were deliberately bombing hospitals and yeah. ambulances. So I think that was the last time we really saw it kind of talked about. But I guess our hope is that by international people being present here and witnessing it, that something could potentially change. But it's also just that, yeah, it's also just to show Palestinian people that people do care. Well, I was <laughs> going to ask you... Yeah, I was going to ask you yeah. what's the... You know what's the response from just you know the the Palestinians that you're? I mean, I imagine just on that level, it must mean a lot to to just those those people that there's some solidarity from you know from afar and just that human connection. Yeah, and I think they, I mean, from the friends I have here, of course they appreciate it. Um, I mean, they're they're just normal people. (laughs) They love Facebook. They (laughs) they read the news. We're talking about an incredibly well-educated, especially given given the situation, well-educated global citizens that just have a complete (laughs) disparity of access to the global world. And you know, most of them can't get a permit to leave the West Bank. So, never mind Gaza, which is you know a whole other situation that, you know, internationals still can't really get into Gaza. So unless you're with particular organizations. So, yeah, I mean, the day-to-day existence is like having amazing, beautiful meals with, you know, lovely families and and understanding their lives better and what the reality of 67 years of occupation is. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's... I was at the funeral a few days ago of um, a 13-year-old boy who was shot in Bethlehem for, uh, for allegedly throwing stones. And uh, he was sniped in the heart. And um, the funeral was a huge event in the town. And um, it, was, it was based in the Ida refugee camp. And that, that refugee camp is mostly made up of refugees from East Jerusalem, which was annexed 
1967. So you've got generation, like, you know, there's a few generations now of people who've been born into the refugee camps who don't know the places where their family, their parents were born, who aren't, aren't able to visit those places and who may never see Jerusalem, may never ever see the ocean, may never be able to leave the West Bank. Mm. And, you know, they're the stories, that's what makes you come back to the West Bank. It's it's like trying to work out how how can we as international people who, if we are sympathetic and we, we are paying attention, what can we do? And, I mean, it's those individual stories which everybody here has some tragic, heartbreaking story, to be honest. Yeah. And, um, yeah, working out how to carry that and be useful with it and and how I think, I mean, short of being here, which, of course, like, they always need more international people here. And if we were a thousand international people throughout the West Bank right now, we could do really amazing work. Mm. But we're not. And um, I guess we do what we can do. And in the meantime, if there's people listening to this who want to get involved, I mean, there's also very effective work that can be done from home, like being part of the boycott and divest and sanctions campaign, mm. which is trying to get the um, businesses who are profiting from uh, the occupation of the West Bank you know, do a screening of a, of, a, of a film that's about Palestine. That's how I first learned about the situation here. And um, find alternative media. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's the, the mass media on Palestine and Israel is biased. Yeah. It's just like my bias aside, it is 100% biased. <laughs> and it's so important, the role that alternative media, if we'll call it that even, place in this situation. Yeah. So obviously things like indie media, um, our, our, the website of our organization is um, palsolidarity.org. So that's www.palsolidarity.org, which is the ISM website. And we put reports up there. We've also got a Facebook page. So if there's something that we'll post it on Facebook. Um, and we also have a Twitter um feed which <laughs> it's not your um your average fun twitter feed I'll, I'll tell you that we do it straight from the demonstration so it's yeah. usually yeah it's a good way to ruin your breakfast but it's a great way to stay informed of what's happening exactly as it happens because we we do it from the demos 